the laws of war also explain that um, you cannot have disproportionate civilian damage or indiscriminate bombing. So even if the bombing side claims that it is aiming at a military objective, it is completely forbidden not to take into account the civilian population and disproportionate damage to the civilian lives and their property is going to be considered a war crime where it's been willfully uh, executed like that. Hello and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer. Our last podcast came out just over three weeks ago. It seems almost like a different lifetime. We recorded a conversation with my colleague, Professor Andrew Clapham, about the international law framework that would apply if Russia invaded Ukraine. Almost within hours, the invasion in fact began, and we've entered what is likely to be a new era in international affairs, a paradigm shift potentially of a magnitude greater than that following 9-11 or the collapse of the Soviet Union. What is not new, however, is the reminder of the misery, the despair and the suffering that armed conflicts impose on those caught up in them. As with the build-up to war, now that it's commenced, all the protagonists and their allies and supporters have sought to cloak their actions in the mantle of international law. We hear both sides accuse the other of breaches of international law, of war crimes, even of genocide. So we thought that in light of all of this, it would be important to return to some of the themes of our earlier discussion and examine the facts as they currently present themselves through the prism of international law. We want to understand what we mean by international law in this context, how it applies, and how it might help us calibrate the actions and reactions of the warring parties and make some sense of what we're witnessing unfold in real time. And here to guide us through these topics once again is Professor Andrew Clapham, Professor of International Law at the Geneva Institute, a colleague of mine at Matrix, and one of the world's leading authorities in international law and armed conflicts. Andrew, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, today. Can I start uh, with um, the legal framework that governs the invasion? And then what I'd like to do, if it's OK, is look at what's going on on the ground at the moment and kind of explore with you how the legal framework relates to what we're seeing, what's, how it governs the behaviour of the parties to this conflict. And then finally, if we can just kind of step back and have a think about accountability uh, in law for what's been going on. So let's start then, if we may, with the question of the invasion itself. I mean, when we spoke last on what turned out to be the eve of war, you outlined how the crime of aggression plays a central role in the international law framework governing the relationships between states. And we talked about that as a matter of theory. I mean, I wonder if you could, A, just remind um, me as to what the kind of, what we mean when we talk about the crime of aggression. And secondly, what we can take from what we, what we have been witnessing and, and whether or not we can say it is the crime of aggression or they're certainly the foundation of the crime of aggression. Yes, thank you. Well, um, the crime of aggression is now defined in the Rome Statute as a manifest violation of the UN Charter. 
So it means that one state has used force against another state and it has no excuse for self-defense or some authorization from the Security Council. Um, it's significant because it triggers, if you like, other obligations on other states around the world that have an obligation to bring this to an end. And it makes it quite clear that uh, no, no territory can be seized by force and therefore any claims to any kind of territorial expansion would be um, completely invalid. And it means that the leaders of the state involved in the aggression can be prosecuted for the crime of aggression and all the damage which results from this aggression, um, in theory, or we wouldn't hope in practice, has to be paid to the people of Ukraine. Well, it might sound like a self-answering uh, question, but in terms of what we have witnessed over the last two weeks, I mean, is the, does there appear to be a foundation for the case of aggression? Oh, I don't think anybody has much doubt about that. The uh, General Assembly uh, met in an emergency session and by 141 votes, um, states declared that there had been an act of aggression. And the states uh, that abstained or voted against, I don't think really took the made the claim that this was somehow not an aggression. Those were political votes in support of Russia or states that didn't want to get caught on the wrong side of Russia, but I don't think anybody has made a convincing case that this is somehow not an aggression. We'll come back to look at what the legal consequences of that might be in terms of accountability a little later. But for now, can we kind of move on the timeline forward? We're now into a conflict. It's an international armed conflict between two sovereign nations. Um, People sometimes think of war as being lawless, but that's not the case here, is it? There are several legal frameworks um, that <clears throat> operate uh, to govern the behaviour of the parties to the conflict. Is, is that right? And, and if so, what are they? No, you're right. And it's actually one of the areas of international activity that has the most treaties and the most laws. So there are the four Geneva Conventions would apply, the first additional protocol applies, and a number of uh, specialised treaties about prohibited weapons uh, apply, Russia being a party to some of them. So all of that applies, and it applies to the state of Russia, but it also applies to individuals involved in this armed conflict, so that they could indeed be prosecuted for war crimes or grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. And that could happen either at the International Criminal Court or in numerous countries around the world that have the legislation and the will to prosecute war criminals. We've got then international humanitarian law, the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions applying. But um, they don't displace, do they, other relevant laws such as international human rights law? Indeed. No, human rights law will apply. Um, it might not apply in its complete entirety. Obviously, it's applicable to the type of situation that we have. And there are cases already before the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and there will be other branches of law that are particularly pertinent. Obviously, the Refugee Convention, as well as a serious, uh, sorry, other treaties related to um, all sorts of uh, factors under international law. Can I ask you then, in terms of international humanitarian law, the laws of war, um, what insights they give us into understanding that which we are seeing unfold so vividly and tragic, tragically on our television screens? Um, so 
what, if anything, do they tell us about how armies have to treat civilian populations? Well, the civilian population can never be the subject of an attack, and the civilian population cannot be terrorised through bombardment in, in, with the sort of aim of ensuring that the civilian population rise up and, and suggest to its leaders that they have to surrender or have a new leadership. So attacks on the civilian population are completely prohibited and there's no excuses. The laws of war also explain that um, you cannot have disproportionate civilian damage or indiscriminate bombing. So even if the bombing side claims that it is aiming at a military objective, it is completely forbidden not to take into account the civilian population and disproportionate damage to the civilian lives and their property is going to be considered a war crime where it's being willfully uh, executed like that. One of the other issues which has arisen, which I think you're alluding to, is the attacks on hospitals. Um, a hospital cannot be attacked. Of course, the bombing side will say, well, there were military objectives there or there were fighters or combatants in the hospital. Um, even if that was the case, um, a warning has to be given uh, before any such attack could take place. So the rules are quite detailed and the rules are well known and violations of them are going to constitute war crimes. That's obviously not much consolation for the civilians that are suffering this damage and this deprivation. But um, that's my best attempt to tell you what the laws are and how they're being violated. Well, some of those are particular, aren't they, specific? So, I mean, there are particular um, prohibitions on targeting hospital or healthcare workers uh, 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 within the Geneva Conventions. Uh, um, but there's also kind of general principles, aren't they, which you touched upon about um, non-targeting of civilians. And um, how do we understand that when we're looking at TV footage of um, the tower blocks being uh, uh, um, subject to missile attacks um, or artillery barrage? I mean, on their face, it looks like an indiscriminate attack against the civilian population. If it comes to a court or also on some of the um, media responses, the Russian government has said, oh, but there are military objectives there or there are fighters there. Um, that, uh, I don't know, that at first glance, that doesn't seem to be the case. The massive uh, destruction of the civilian area seems to have no particular military objective in mind. I mean, you can see it and one has seen it um, raised in some conflicts as a defence that... Um, there was a military operation taking place at the in in in, in the tower block, but it it becomes almost impossible to conceive how you can run that as a uh, any form of justifiable defence when you're knocking out hundreds and taking out neighbourhoods. I think that's right. I mean, one can see the rule on paper that if there is some military objective, uh, then it's possible that some civilians can be killed, and that is somehow not a violation of the laws of war. But as soon as you start to get uh, the sorts of numbers of civilians uh, being injured and uh, killed, and we've seen, it's very difficult to see what kind of military objective is in this uh, these civilian areas. Can I ask about some other aspects of what we've been seeing unfold? Um, as we speak, there is what appears to be effectively a siege of Maripol um, with thousands of people being subjected to uh, an absence of food, of electricity, heating. Um, there's um, talk about Kiev go coming into a siege situation. 
Um, what's the position with the legality of sieges in international law? Well, as you know, I mean, historically, sieges have been used to starve the population into submission. And, you know, people will make the philosophical argument that that is better than bombarding areas um, where there are soldiers and there are military objectives and allow the soldiers to surrender because of the siege. To me, it makes no sense these days to talk about starving even combatants. Um, I know that people would say, but that's a, a historical and customary way to wage war. But we don't anymore accept that you can torture your prisoners. So I don't understand how one could start the argument that you can starve them into submission. I think siege as a tactic uh, should not have any legal um, credibility and should be consigned to a legal dustbin. The effect on the civilian population is going to be enough to make this uh, on its face uh, illegal. There's no question that they're attempting to feed the civilian population. So uh, I think it should be denounced. And I, I get quite angry when I hear people trying to explain the ins and outs of the legal history of siege. I mean, it's clearly um, abhorrent and ought to be in the same category as torture. Yeah, if you starve people, it's very difficult to conceive of how you can begin to justify it. Absolutely. Can I ask you about, uh, um, again, some other aspects uh, of the conflict as it's currently unfolding? Uh, there's talk of, um, by both sides, or about chemical and biological weapons. The Russians at the moment are accusing the US and Ukraine of running biological um, sites within Ukraine. The United States and Europe are deeply concerned that this might be a cover for Russia's own uh, uh, potential use of chemical or biological weapons. What's the position in law about the use of those types of weapons? Position in the law is very simple. They're completely forbidden. And even if you make the argument that the other side has used them, it still remains forbidden. In the First World War, uh, there was obviously the argument and the treaties were different at that time that if one side used uh, the prohibited weapons, then the other side was entitled to use them. So there was a no first use rule. That, that in the 21st century is, is completely irrelevant. You cannot use chemical or biological weapons in reprisal, and it is not a provocation or some kind of justification that the other side is using them. There's no exceptions, no reservations, no possibility to use that argument. It's obviously being presented for sort of domestic consumption to sort of gather support for the war as to some kind of moral justification for the violence and, God forbid, some future use of those types of weapons. But it's the, the argument has absolutely no legal credibility at all. Kind of connected to that. It, 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 I mean, every day there seems to be the new allegation that what are alleged to be unlawful munitions or weaponry are being employed, for example, cluster bombs. It might strike some people as bizarre that you would actually have laws allowing you to have a lawful type of weapon that can kill lots of people and then an unlawful type of... And a, another type of weapon is unlawful when it kills lots of people. Um, is there a lawful basis that distinguishes between the two? And um, should we have... Uh, are there credible grounds for concerns as to the type of weaponry that's being deployed here? Well, there are some weapons which are just completely forbidden and there's no exceptions. And we've talked about chemical weapons and biological weapons and those would fall in that category. Um, you mentioned cluster munitions. Russia has not actually ratified that treaty. So under sort of strict international law, they're not in violation of the prohibition of cluster munitions that other 
uh, states have agreed to. However, the way in which those weapons are used may be that they're used in a way which is indiscriminate with regards to the civilian population, which means that the attack on the civilian population or the harm to the civilian population is completely illegal. At that point, the use of the weapon becomes illegal, not because of it's that type of weapon, but because of the effect of the weapon on the civilian population. And the evidence which is coming out is likely to show that the weapons are being used in civilian areas and therefore their use is illegal. But it's the effect on the civilian population that makes them illegal in that particular instance. Is that because munitions such as cluster bombs can have a pretty indiscriminate um, impact when uh, uh, on the ground and so are much more likely to um, kill civilians than, um, for example, a guided munition? Absolutely, and that's the rationale for banning them. But some states will say, well, we don't know. In the future, there might be a situation where we're using them only against a military objective, and therefore we want to reserve the right to use them in those circumstances, and that's why states such as Russia or the United States have not joined that ban. But the way in which they're used can still be illegal, and it, their use in such circumstances could constitute a war crime for those who, who use them or their, order their use knowing that they're going to be used in a civilian context. As I said the, um, a little earlier on, we're in an international armed conflict now, it would appear, rather than a non-international armed conflict. Both, of course, have common standards um, for um, the treatment of uh, other human beings affected by the conflict. But is one difference here uh, um, in respect of prisoners of war, one difference between an IAC and a NIAC? Yes, I mean, that's one major difference in that uh, any Russians captured by the Ukrainian side, um, Russians from the Russian armed forces are going to be granted or should be granted prisoner of war status, and then they are detained until the end of the conflict. And they're not tried for merely having participated in the conflict, but released. On the other hand, should they be accused of having committed war crimes, uh, they could indeed be prosecuted uh, for those crimes. The other major difference, I would say, for present purposes, is that the war crimes committed in the international armed conflict are, in many cases, going to constitute grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions and Protocol 1, and therefore can be prosecuted in the case of G Geneva Convention grave breaches in any state in the world, because it's a crime of universal jurisdiction. And that is going to make a difference um, in the follow-up to this war when people are travelling around and there are dossiers collected on them uh, as war criminals, so they could be arrested and prosecuted anywhere in the world. Can I come back to that really important point um, shortly when we kind of turn to uh, accountability for what's been going on? Can I just ask you one other question about prisoners of war? which is there's been some criticism levelled against the Ukrainian authorities for broadcasting footage of Russian soldiers, um, both dead soldiers uh, and also interviews with captured soldiers. What's the position in international law in, in respect to those actions? Those actions are forbidden and the, the state would be responsible. It's uh, not permitted under the Geneva Convention and it's obviously discouraged because... Um, it's unfair to the dignity of the prisoners, and it can also put those prisoners um, in danger back home. So, for example, in, in some of the Iraq wars, uh, it was uh, very unfortunate that 
photos were shown of Iraqi soldiers surrendering and then Saddam Hussein was able to um, take measures against their family and say to other soldiers, I will know when you surrender, do not do it, fight on. So one can see the, the rationale for the rule. It's not just about the, the dignity of the individuals. It could be very serious consequences to show people who have surrendered. Andrew, there are two legal um, phrases, both of which got a deep place anyway in, in the vernacular that are being um, used by both parties at the moment. Uh, the first is crimes against humanity and the second is genocide. And I, I wonder if we could just look at those in turn. And firstly, if you could just explain what we mean by crimes against humanity. And secondly, throw any light as to how it could help us understand, if at all, what's going on on the ground in Ukraine at the moment. I mean, there's a long list of crimes against humanity. It's essentially very serious violations of human rights that are done in a widespread and systematic way in an attack on the civilian population doesn't have to be connected to the armed conflict. It can be before or after the armed conflict. And it is a way of prosecuting people without the intricacies of the laws of war for very serious acts, murder, extermination, sexual slavery, all kinds of things like that. Genocide is slightly different in that it is connected to an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group as such. And there are multiple acts. I mean, it involves killing members of the group, which is what most people think of, but it also involves a lot of other acts that don't involve killing, such as causing serious bodily injury, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of the group, imposing measures to prevent births in the group or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So it covers a wide range of acts where the aim is to destroy the ethnical or, or religious or national uh, makeup of the other group. And as you know, it's been invoked in this conflict. Um, there's a particular reason why it's being invoked. It's being invoked for sort of rhetorical purposes in order to, again, whip up enthusiasm for the side and create justification. But the Genocide Convention allows a state to go to the International Court of Justice under certain conditions. And that's what's happened. Ukraine has taken Russia to the International Court of Justice using the Genocide Convention as the basis for its jurisdiction. And you can't do that with crimes against humanity because the treaty is not yet um, in force. Come back to, to that, that point, which is a really interesting one about how it's being used to kind of found a case within the ICJ. Just stepping back for a second, though, listening to your definition of um, genocide. One scene that how Russia has put it in respect of the um, Russian speaking enclave, majority Russian speaking enclaves, uh, uh, asserting genocide that absolutely no one is taking as having uh, credibility. But equally, can one, is there credible evidence that the Russians are committing genocide within Ukraine at the moment? Well, I mean, if you were to sort of step back and look at some of the acts um, that we're talking about, I mean, one could start to make that argument. I don't think it's helpful to start to talk about it. It's much more important to stop the conflict and to suggest that uh, war crimes are being committed and people will be held accountable. To shift everything into a, a genocide uh, discussion starts to pick one nationality against another as a people. 
and escalates the sort of levels of hatred and justification, um, which I don't think is, is useful in this context. One, one wants to sort of get us to a situation of peace as quickly as possible rather than inflame the process. Yeah, in a context in which nobody credibly denying war crimes are taking place on a minute-by-minute basis um, with absolutely egregious violations of international humanitarian law. I mean, the genocide talk on the Russian side is is part of a justification as to why they had to invade in the first place. Um, and so the allegations of genocide there are being used not only to sort of garner support um, within Russia, but also to sort of somehow suggest that in law this can be justified because in the past other states have used the genocide argument to suggest that they could engage in armed force. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a diversionary tactic. But as you say, I don't think that they, anybody has presented any evidence of uh, genocide against the Russian population. Let's move to accountability. You've mentioned the case before the ICJ. Um, what's, what's the nature of the case and what's its current status? Well, I think the, the Russian government uh, decided not to appear. I think the, the point of the case is Ukraine is hoping that the court will rule, first of all, that Ukraine has not committed genocide in that context, and that could be useful um, for the international community. And secondly, to rule that Russia's um, invasion is not at all justified with regards to its uh, allegations of genocide, and therefore to rule in addition that Russia's um, invasion is illegal. There are some complicated legal points as to whether the court can actually rule on the use of force, um, because it can really, it's being addressed under the Genocide Convention, but I wouldn't like to prejudge what the court would do. I mean, a cynic might say, you know, in terms of what's actually going on on the ground at the moment, what what possible difference is um, a decision of the International Court of Justice is in The Hague going to have over bombs raining down uh, in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities? Well, I think... You know, is, is there a value? There is a value because uh, the Ukrainians will be able to add an extra layer to their arguments as to why um, what is happening is totally illegal. But the whole situation is not hinging on what happens in the International Court of Justice. There are other legal strategies involving the International Criminal Court reminding anybody who is in Ukrainian territory that they could be prosecuted before the International Criminal Court. There are cases before the European Court of Human Rights, which is sort of mobilizing efforts within the Council of Europe. So a lot of this is about pointing to the, the gross illegality that's going on and not putting one's hands in the authority of one particular court. But just looking at the ICJ for a moment, we'll definitely come to the ICC in a, in a, in a moment, but looking at the ICJ at the moment, do you, I mean, is there within the international legal order any realistic hope that even if you were to get a swift judgment out of the ICJ, it would have any impact on, say, how China related to Russia or uh, any other kind of kind of Russian proxy votes at the Security Council? Is there, is there is there any hope of that, or is it is it more symbolic in itself that the international legal order is a being used at this time, which may be thought to have an intrinsic value, and b setting out clear statements and standards? 
In, it may in the end not turn exactly on what's in the ICJ's judgment, but rather in the fact that you and I and other people are talking about this and the arguments which are made by the Ukrainian lawyers in The Hague, which is reminding every single state in the world that under international law, they have an obligation to bring this violation of uh, peremptory norms and act of aggression to an end. So it may affect decision making in various uh, capitals around the world as to what they need to do and why they have an obligation to do it. And that is, can have knock-on effects. It could be in related to receiving refugees. It could be in relation to arms. But it, it changes a lot of decision-making at a lot of levels. So it's not really about you know going to the ultimate court, but rather about reminding every state and every decision-maker about what has happened and their obligations to try and bring that to an end. And some of that could be very substantial uh, questions. And also perhaps the value of just reminding ourselves that we are governed by laws. Well, indeed. I mean, if we were in a situation where the International Court of Justice has no role or the International Criminal Court has no role because we're in a state of war and all treaties are suspended, you know, that would be a, a, from another century. But I think it is good to remind that not only states have continuing obligations, but there will be a lot of talk as well about the individual criminal responsibility that is involved in a lot of these actions. And one can only hope in a very sort of optimistic way that it would give some leaders, some uh, commanders, some individual soldiers pause for thought when the orders come down to do this or that act, which on its face is going to be obviously criminal. Well, let's turn then straight away to the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, Kareem Khan, the chief prosecutor, has started an investigation. Um, what jurisdiction, if any, would it actually have over Russia? It has jurisdiction over any individual um, who's responsible for acts in the Ukrainian territory. So the Criminal Court doesn't really have responsibility over Russia or jurisdiction over Russia. But any uh, Russian national or indeed any national from any country in the world um, who is involved in war crimes, genocide or crimes against humanity in this conflict could eventually find themselves being prosecuted at the ICC or indeed in a number of uh, states around the world which have jurisdiction over those crimes. So if you're captured as a prisoner of war, the fact that Russia might not hand you over if you're back in Russia isn't going to help you because you Absolutely. can be handed over from the Ukraine's egg, or indeed tried in Ukraine, if Ukraine survives as a sovereign nation. Absolutely. Ukraine, as I said, um, will have prisoners of war at some point, and they may choose to prosecute them themselves for those war crimes, and that's a tradition which has happened um, for centuries. But it's also possible that they may think this is better prosecuted at the International Criminal Court because we want the world's attention on what happened and what this person has done, and we want to ensure that there's no problem with the trial. Um, so it is not at all inconceivable that Russians will find themselves being prosecuted in the ICC, because in this case, uh, they're physically already in the territory of Ukraine. And um, as things are going, it seems to me it's quite possible that some of them would be captured and tried and handed over to the ICC and then tried there. But what a cynic might say, Andrew, is, well, you know, that might be the foot soldiers who are caught in Ukraine who get tried before a criminal court. But it's not going to bother Putin in Moscow and that um, effectively Putin is going to have impunity for what's gone on. Under, he might break international law, but he's never going to be held accountable for it 
Is that is that too cynical, too pessimistic view of the arc of international criminal justice? I think it might be a bit too cynical. I like to think things can turn out differently. I remember during the Yugoslavia wars, my political science uh, colleagues in the academic world telling me, look, Andrew Milosevic will never be prosecuted. He's a head of state and he's, you know, nicely ensconced there. Your talk about an international criminal tribunal prosecuting him is, is just nonsense. And as we know, he was taken to The Hague and prosecuted. Um, and indeed, his own people, you know, turned against him and surrendered him. Now, I don't know how this is going to pan out, but it would certainly be difficult, I think, uh, for Putin to travel abroad and not have to consider the prospects that he might be arrested um, and handed over to the International Criminal Court or indeed prosecuted in another state. It seems a far-fetched idea at the moment, but I mean, other heads of state have ended up being prosecuted. Charles Taylor of Liberia is another recent case. So I don't think we should uh, be too cynical. And I think one has to keep talking about it because there will be, I imagine, uh, people around Putin who will be starting to think that they don't want to live the rest of their lives um, confined to Russia and thinking about when they might be arrested or indicted before an international criminal court. Because I think, as you touched on before, I mean, the nature of the crimes um, that appear to uh, to be committed as we speak are such that in many jurisdictions, never mind the International Criminal Court, but in many jurisdictions, if individuals suspected of those crimes um, uh, arrived at the airports, um, they could be arrested, charged and tried, even Indeed. though the crimes didn't occur on the soil of that country. Indeed, and there's an aspect we haven't mentioned, and that's the international law of command responsibility. So even if you weren't, uh, as you say, a foot soldier actually firing into the civilian population, um, you are responsible as a commander, military commander, if you fail to prevent uh, those acts or if you fail to punish them. And so the prosecutor will be thinking about uh, orders that have been given and whether or not uh, there have been any attempts to punish any war crimes. And the commanders will be having to think how they're going to avoid an eventual accusation that they failed to punish these war crimes because it leaves them liable to being prosecuted as a war criminal for command responsibility. Andrew, I mean, you've had, you've got um, was unique experience in various capacities of um, engaging um, with governments and armed forces across the globe in terms of issues to do with the laws of war. In your experience, how much do you think potential criminal liability actually weighs on the minds of commanders uh, and senior members of uh, governments during a time of armed conflict? Is, is there a sense that the court might be hovering over their shoulder? I think there is. Um, I think, I mean, I don't mind saying I've spoken to people who, who do want to know what it is that they have to do to ensure that they can't be prosecuted for command responsibility because they've done everything they can to, to punish those who have committed the crimes. And I think the more we talk about it, the clearer it becomes to people who have a sense of morality and a sense of their own responsibility that they ought to pause for thought either before respecting an order which is obviously illegal or indeed if they have people under their command that they punish them and ensure they do everything to prevent war crimes committed by them. 
So I don't think it's completely pie in the sky to keep talking about this. Um, and there will, in this case, I'm sure, be prosecutions coming down the road. But the main thing at the moment has to be, of course, to convince people to stop what they're doing and to realize that these are crimes which are covered by no statute of limitation. And once they've been committed, one can be prosecuted even in decades' time. So better not to do it. So we've covered the ICJ and the ICC. Um, Russia and Ukraine, members of the Council of Europe, and say subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights. Anything, um, anything happening there? Well, Russia's been suspended from the, the Council of Europe, and I, I, I'm not very optimistic that uh, they're going to sort of suddenly conform to the orders of the European Court of Human Rights on this issue. But I think uh, cases will be brought by individual uh, Ukrainians against uh, the Russian government. And it is possible that in the future, you know, they will get at least their story uh, told before the court and one would hope compensation and maybe a future Russian government uh, taking steps to ensure that uh, people are punished and this sort of thing doesn't happen again. I mean, one can only be optimistic, but as I say, the, the priority at the moment ought to be on, on every effort to ensure that more people are not killed as we're speaking. Can I then ask you um, about the role of third parties and this and assistance um, for Ukraine? Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not NATO or individual members of NATO could provide no-fly zones over um, Ukraine. And the debate has been, well, wouldn't that... Um, the, the, answer, the, the refusal to do so has been based on not wanting to become a, effectively a participant in the, in the armed conflict with the consequences that flow from that. But some might struggle... <laughs> with um, why that would render them a participant, but selling them, as appears to be the case, uh, a, a, a ground-to-air defence missiles, uh, um, providing um, a range of munitions and military equipment isn't. I mean, does law help us understand what's going on there, or, or, or is that purely in the realm of politics? I think it's more or less purely in the realm of politics. Uh, the law is very clear. Ukraine has asked for um, other states to help it militarily in its self-defense. So any state in the world is entitled to come to the defense of um, Ukraine under Article 51 of the UN Charter. You're right that they have been providing um, weapons which can be used against tanks or surface-to-air missiles against planes but they have balked at providing fighter jets. There's no sort of legal explanation for that. Uh, it is purely that they feel that that could be seen as some sort of act of war by the Russian authorities, which would escalate the conflict and Russia might decide to attack any NATO state or any other state that was seen to be providing those jets. I think there's another explanation is that the, the states that are providing the weapons are stressing that these are defensive weapons and therefore they are sort of, if you like, morally acceptable because they are needed to save the lives of the people under attack. Once you start to provide weapons that can be used in an attack, in an offensive way, 
um, it somehow, I think, in people's minds feels as though you are fueling the conflict rather than providing emergency military relief. And that may be part of the hesitation about the jets in that obviously they could, in theory, be used you know, in Russian airspace. But to be honest, I think it's just it's purely symbolic and it's strategic. They are frightened that this will escalate well, things. But in law, there's no difference between, between providing an anti-tank grenade or classically or a be un jet. understood with the notion of neutrality and actually being a participant. Or do we have to rethink that in terms of what this conflict is showing us? I think we have to rethink it. I think at the beginning of the conflict, the textbooks would say that states, for example, such as Germany, um, would have an obligation not to provide weapons to either side. Otherwise, they would be in breach of their obligations of neutrality. And I think a lot of states thought that was the case. Now we have the situation that a state such as Germany or even Sweden, um, which one might have thought of as, as taking a neutral stance, providing weapons to the Ukrainian side. So. There are sort of, in my mind, two possibilities here. Either the law of neutrality is dead or there is a legal argument to be made that because of Russia's aggression, those states are entitled in reprisal or countermeasure, if you prefer, to violate any neutrality obligations that they have and provide weapons. And that's an old argument that was used by the United States in 1940-41 before they entered the Second World War to provide Britain with weapons against Germany. And the argument was Germany has committed an act of aggression, violated uh, the peace treaties, and therefore the law of neutrality is no longer applicable because we can breach it um, as part of our reprisal against the initial violation of international law by Germany. By Germany. And that would be, I think, a respectable uh, legal argument in the current context. You could call it collective countermeasures in, in self-defense. There's a the International Law Commission sort of addresses this in its articles on state responsibility. And one could make the argument that this is a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. They are acting in collective self-defense with Ukraine and therefore are entitled to that. breach any we neutrality end. obligations that might otherwise apply. To kind of step back here, almost a question to do with kind of legal philosophy, why we have laws. Um, there's really in one sense, no greater expression of lawfulness, lawful, lawlessness. I'm going to, at uh, 39, uh, Anisha, I'm going to redo that. I can't pronounce the word. That's 39 minutes, sorry. So let me redo that <clears throat> and re-record this bit. Uh, Andrew, thank you for that. Before we end, can I just take a step back with you and try and look at this almost through the prism of legal philosophy and assess why it is we have these laws. Because here we are in the middle of a war, which is in so many ways the absolute ultimate expression of the absence of law in terms of what goes on on the ground. But yet the protagonists appear to be so determined to cloak themselves in, in law so ready to proclaim that what they're doing is lawful, notwithstanding the reality of that which, which they're doing. Why is it 
why is it even when you're breaking the law in the most blatant way by targeting millions of civilians why is it people still want to cling on to that notion that what they're doing is lawful or proclaim that what they're doing is lawful I think in this context, um, the Russian government knows that it's not convincing um, the rest of the world or the Security Council or any court that what it's doing is lawful. What they need to do is to keep up support for the war because the war has to be fought with individual human beings and society has to stay behind the war if society is not going to collapse. So these arguments are being used um, in a selective and distorted way to convince people to stay behind the leader. And counter arguments are not given much um, space within the Russian uh, media or for the Russian citizenry. And so I think if you're asking me why, it's precisely so that people can be convinced that this is somehow a just war and justified and that Russia has the law and right on its side. At a certain point, I would imagine that's going to crumble when people realize the actual effects of what is going on and that this is not about preventing so a genocide or preventing the use of biological weapons. And we have to hope that that moment comes very standards. quickly. Well, I mean, it's very curious that, uh, that the first thing that was said by the Russian ambassador in the Security Council was this is not a war, it's a special military operation. And all of that is about convincing people that they are doing something that is right and not something that is horrific. I mean, aggressive war is forbidden under the Russian penal code, the penal code of Ukraine, the penal code of Belarus, and this sort of partly explains why they don't want to be seen by their people to be at war much better to present this as a peacekeeping operation to save people from genocide. But that argument is not going to withstand hard reality of the facts once people start to really realise what's going on. Thank you for charting us through that legal framework. Look forward to a better time when perhaps on the eve of the first trial before the ICC of those most responsible for war crimes in this current war are held accountable, we can we can talk again about Ukraine for joining us. Thank you for having me.